would you open up your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 2. This is the last time I'm going to say that. Ha ha. Next week it'll be open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. You believe we're going to move on to chapter 3? <laughs> oh, today we're going to be looking at the dream interpreted part 3. One yet future, yet future godly kingdom. Now we've looked at four now past from our perspective in history Gentile kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Then we looked at one yet future Gentile kingdom, which is the kingdom represented by the feet and the toes of iron mixed with clay, the revived Roman Empire. Um, and today we're going to be looking at the best kingdom of all, one yet future godly kingdom. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion in the world that really consists of two books that are separated by 400 years? You have the Old Testament in which uh, God gave many prophecies about events to happen in the future. And then after the Old Testament was written, there was a 400-year space before the beginning of the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we find the fulfillment of all the prophecies given in the Old Testament. So the divine authorship of Christianity is validated because only God can predict what will happen in the future and then bring it to pass. The Old Testament presents what we could call a prophetic messianic mosaic. That's a mouthful, isn't it? A prophetic messianic mosaic. The mosaic was progressively pieced together by the Spirit's revelation through the Old Testament prophets and the writers of the Old Testament books. And it was very difficult for even the writers of some of those Old Testament books and the, and the prophets to figure it all out. It was progressive revelation. And it was hard for them to put it all together until Jesus Christ physically entered into the picture, until he came into that mosaic picture with his birth and the miraculous circumstances surrounding his birth and his life and his death and his resurrection, of course, and his ascension back into heaven, everything then fell into place and it all made perfect sense. It is really, I can never get over the wonder of it all. Every week when I study the scripture, it just amazes me over and over again and I think how much more is there I think I've learned it all and then there's something new to learn and it's just so deep and rich and wow I just can't get over it it amazes me but it's so breathtakingly beautiful to see how not only directly given messianic prophecies and when I say that I mean like that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David and, you know, et cetera. That's a directly given prophecy that he would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Not only um, is it amazing to see how all those directly given messianic prophecies come together, but also all the symbolic and type prophecies of the coming Messiah, such as Joseph being a perfect type, type of Jesus. His whole life was a type of Jesus. Moses, we saw last year, was such a perfect picture in many, many ways of Jesus. Um, there's just so many things. The ark, Noah's ark, is a picture of salvation in Jesus, on and on. It's just wonderful to see how all that wealth of messianic, messianic prophecies, all of them find their fulfillment in one person. And who is that person? 
the Lord Jesus Christ, absolutely. And one such messianic symbol that was revealed in the New Testament to be Jesus concerns the numerous, once mysterious statements regarding the coming stone with a capital S. Way back as early as the book of Genesis, do you know way back when Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, was dying, in Genesis 49, verse 24, he spoke of, quote, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, end of quote. And with that statement and further Old Testament references to a person called a stone or a rock, the Jews eventually came to realize the messianic connection. They came to realize that the stone or the rock referred to the promised seed of the woman, their coming Messiah, their Redeemer. But some of the stone prophecies of the Old Testament were so vastly different in nature that it perplexed the rabbis and the scribes, the students, you know, the Jewish students of, of Scripture, how they could harmonize some of these prophecies that were so different. For example, in Isaiah chapter 8, the prophet Isaiah referred to the Messiah as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense and a breaking stone. However, the same prophet Isaiah in chapter 28 referred to the Messiah as a foundation stone, a tried stone, you know, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone. And those two were kind of difficult to resolve. And then David came along, and he confused the situation even further in Psalm 118 when he said the Messiah was to be a rejected stone, one that the builders themselves, speaking of the religious leaders of Israel, that they would refuse. And yet that rejected stone was to become the headstone of the corner. That's the most important stone in, in a building. So they were confused, and if we were in their sandals, we would have been confused too, wouldn't we? And then in our passage, you know, from Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, he, he's in the Old Testament, he referred to the Messiah as a stone cut out without hands, who would come from above and smash the whole godless world system. So the Jews wondered, how can the Messiah be a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and a rejected stone, and yet also be a cornerstone, a precious stone, a, a sure foundation, and yet also be a crushing, smiting stone, like in Daniel? And so one thing became clear. They did not understand that there were going to be two comings of the Messiah, two advents, first coming, second coming. They didn't get that. What they concluded was that there had to be two Messiahs. You know, there had to be a suffering, a suffering savior stone, we could call it, um, that, that matched all the, the statement, like the lamb, you know, the suffering lamb led to the slaughter. There had to be a suffering Messiah and then there had to be a second Messiah who would come, and he would be the lion Messiah, the smashing Savior stone. So instead of realizing there were going to be two comings, they said there was two Messiahs. 
Well, so this was a puzzle, and the first answer to the puzzle of the stone came from none other than Jesus himself. Do you remember when he was actually, this is in Matthew 21, he was actually speaking to the builders who were in the very process of rejecting him. That would be the chief priests and the Pharisees, the scribes, the elders of the Jews. And he said to them, did ye never read the scriptures? You guys, you know, you study and you study and you study and you never get it. (laughs) And that could be said to so many people today, couldn't it? Did ye never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, now he's quoting from David in Psalm 118, the same is become the head of the corner. You know what he's saying there? Not two messiahs, the same stone. The one that you guys, the builders, are going to reject is the same one who's become become the head of the corner, the cornerstone. And then he said, and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. There he's quoting from Isaiah 8, the stumbling stone. And he said, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. He could have said chaff, couldn't he? There he's referring to Daniel 2, the smashing, smiting stone. So you see how he pulled it all together? And he said, no, it's going to be one Messiah. It's going to be a fulfillment of all those prophecies. And then after his death and resurrection, the apostle Peter clarified matters when he boldly pronounced to the co-reigning high priest, remember this from our study of Acts last year? He was standing, he and John had been arrested, and he's standing before Annas and Caiaphas, the ones who had just crucified Jesus, and the whole Sanhedrin council, and he so boldly says to them that Jesus, he made it really clear, that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, so you don't confuse him with any other Jesus, who they had crucified, but God had raised from the dead, he, Peter said, is the stone set at naught by you builders, which has become the head of the corner. He made it clear, didn't he, to them. And then in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter further expounded on the Old Testament stone prophecies when he explained that a person who comes to Christ in faith has come to a living stone. That's what he calls Christ, a living. Now, have you ever seen a living stone? I'll never have seen, every stone I've ever seen is a dead stone. (laughs) It's an inanimate object, right? So if you come to Christ, you're coming to a living stone. That's supernatural, isn't it? That means he's supernatural. Um, So the person who comes to him, uh, although he was rejected by men, yet Peter says he is the chosen of God and he is precious. He is the precious stone. And all his followers are then living stones as well. He's the big living stone, and we are all little living stones. That means we too are supernatural, because we have him, you know, God, the Holy Spirit living in us. Have you ever thought of yourself as a living stone? You are. You're little living stones. We all are. We're built up, Peter says, as a spiritual house upon him. He is the foundation rock. He's the living stone. And upon him came the apostles, and then all the, the saints of the church age, we're all living stones and we all build up together a house that is called the church. But he is the one and only rock solid foundation. There is no other foundation apart from him except sand and it sinks and it's gone, right? 
just like this whole statue. But Peter said, for those who do not believe, stumbling over Christ because of their disobedience to the clear scriptural evidence, which is abundant as to who he really is, those who don't believe, Christ therefore becomes a stone of stumbling to them. They stumble over him. They're offended by him. He's a rock of offense. Those who reject him, Peter says, will therefore one day encounter him as the smiting stone of judgment. The rejected stone, you see, at his first coming, will one day be the smiting stone at his second coming. So better to accept him than to know him as the smiting stone, right? Don't reject him. If you reject him, he'll be your smiting stone. Accept him, and the living stone will make you a living stone, and you'll live forever. Great. Well, with this lesson, we come to the final kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar's God-given dream, and it is not part of the colossal image, is it? It's separate. You've got that huge image there, and then you've got the stone. They're two separate parts of that dream. The, the colossal statue represented the times of the Gentiles. And the final kingdom, represented by the stone that grows into a great mountain, totally smashes to pieces that entire image. Look at verse 45. It smashes to pieces what? The iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold of the entire image so that it is no more. Now notice that's backwards, isn't it? That's upside down, because, you know, normally it was the gold, the silver, the brass, and the iron, and then the clay. Um, but this is backwards because the stone hits the image on the feet, right? And so it crumbles from the iron on up, down, up to the, the gold. But I was looking at that, and I thought, why is the clay out of order? It should be the iron and the clay, and then the brass, and then the silver and the gold. Why is the clay in the middle? And I thought, uh-oh. And then I realized, well, of course, it's in the center because the Holy Spirit was telling us basically that the whole thing is of the earth, clay. The whole statue is of the earth. So he put the clay in the middle. Now, the one who will establish the final earthly kingdom, which is that kingdom is depicted as a, the great mountain. If you look back at verse 35, the stone became the great mountain which fills the earth. Um, and Daniel identifies that kingdom as God's indestructible, eternal kingdom. The one who destroys that is none other than the stone. And you see, the Jewish people who were captive with Daniel in Babylon, when they heard about this dream, and later on when he wrote the book of Daniel and they read it, they would understand when he talked about the stone, coming and crushing the whole thing, smashing it to pieces, they understood that that was referring to their coming Messiah. They got that. They just were confused about the stumbling and the rejected and all that. But they did know the stone pictured their coming Messiah. All right, so let's look now at Daniel 44 and 45 from chapter 2, one yet future godly kingdom. I'm going to start at verse 44 where Daniel says, he's still standing before King Nebuchadnezzar interpreting the dream, and he says, and in the days of these kings. Now, what kings is he talking about there? The ten-toe kings, the, the United 
confederacy that will be under the Antichrist. So he's talking about the ten kings of the last days of that last Gentile kingdom. He says, in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, all the previous ones that he had been talking about, including the Antichrist kingdom, and it, this new kingdom of God, shall stand for how long? Forever. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. Well, he gave him more than he asked for, didn't he? I mean, all the way to the second coming and the establishment of the millennial kingdom. He sure did give Nebuchadnezzar what would come to pass hereafter. And then Daniel says, and the dream is certain and the interpretation thereof sure. All right, there is a dual nature to the prophecy of the dream image. First of all, and we've talked about this a lot, so you know this by now, the Colossus, the statue, is God's revelation of the successive Gentile nations, the world powers, that would affect the sovereignty of Israel. Starting with Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the revived Roman Empire. Successive Gentile kingdoms that would affect the sovereignty of Israel. That's one part of the prophecy. Then the second part of the dual prophetic nature of the dream is that it foretells of the eventual destruction of the entire Babylonian world system by none other than the stone, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God. In other words, it speaks of the time when the kingdoms of this earth become the kingdom of our Lord, as it tells us in Revelation 11. Don't you look forward to that day when the kingdom of our Lord will be here on earth? Wow, I sure do. I'm, I'm so sick of the kingdoms of this earth. <laughs> now, as the first kingdom of the image, remember the first image of uh, the first kingdom of the head of gold? As that was identified by Daniel to be Nebuchadnezzar, who was synonymous with Babylon, he identified for us. We didn't have to guess on it. He said to Nebuchadnezzar, thou art the head of gold. Well, he does the same thing for us with this last kingdom. In verse 44, he identifies it. He tells us that it is the kingdom of the God of heaven, and it is eternal because it will stand forever. As the head of gold pictured Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, a king of kings, so does the stone represent the earthly kingdom of God and its king, Christ, who we now know from our New Testament perspective, we now know is Jesus, the King of Kings. Now, way back in Genesis chapter 11, and I think in the last couple messages I kept saying Genesis 10 was the Tower of Babel. I'm sorry, that's wrong if that's what I said, because it's actually Genesis chapter 11. Nimrod, who built the tower, is mentioned in Genesis 10, and I think I was thinking of that. But from Genesis 11, we read of the account where God from his heavenly throne was patiently looking down and watching that erection of that first 
kingdom of men, the building of the first kingdom of men as it advanced under the evil leadership of Nimrod and his anti-God confederacy. He was just like kind of anti-Christ because he had his little confederacy of people too. And they together were trying to rebel against God and build their own way to heaven, you know, building the Tower of Babel. And so God listened and he heard all of their let us vain proposals. When I say let us, that's exactly what they said to each other. They said, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. Isn't that few, just foolish and futile to think that they could build a tower that would reach to heaven. But they said, let us build us a city whose tower may reach to heaven and let us make us a name. Who were they all about? Themselves, weren't they? It's been that way ever since. Let us do it. You know, our own resolve, we can do it without God. So he watched all that before finally he'd had it. <laughs> and he spoke a let us proposal of his own. He said to his eternal son, and he said to God the Holy Spirit, let us go down. Here they're trying to build up, you know, and he, he, they, they never could reach him, so he had to go down. So the result of that descent, when he said, let us go down, the result was what? An unfinished tower. The origin of all kinds of different languages. Before that, everybody spoke the same language. Makes sense. You know, they all came off the ark. No one is family. They didn't have different languages. They all spoke the same language. And also the subsequent scattering of the people to the earth, which is exactly, they wound up doing what God had told them to do when they got off the boat. Uh, he said to Noah and his family, multiply and, you know, replenish the earth, fill the earth. Well, they didn't want to do that. They wanted to have a herbal setting and build their high scraper. <laughs> what did I say? High scraper. High scraper! <laughs> There you go. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Skyscraper. Um, so they wound up obeying God anyway, right? He made them obey, but they scattered. Well, Psalm 2, in, in, when we read Psalm 2, it, Psalm 2, I, I did read it yesterday, but it made me get late in finishing the um, message. So would you read it on your own? Um, it's all about the second coming of Christ. It's really interesting. You know, it says the kings are gathered together with the rulers, and this is when they're uh, raging against Christ, God and Christ, his anointed one, and they're saying, let us cut the bands that hold people that cling to their religion and their, and their faith in Christ, and, and so they're warring. This is the picture of all the nations of the world at the end, the ten kings, you know, the Antichrist waging war against Christ. Um, even when he comes, they wage war against him. But God from heaven laughs in derision, and he says, For all their puny little let us proposals, I yet will set my king on my holy hill of Zion, and he will reign, and he will reign over the uttermost parts of the earth. So, you know, and he will, he will break them, it says, with a rod of iron, he will break them to pieces like pottery. And I thought that was interesting. It says that in Psalm 2, verse 9. It speaks about iron and pottery. Very appropriate since he comes in the kingdom that's represented by iron and pottery. But what's the iron that he breaks them with? Just the spoken word of his mouth, it tells us in Revelation 19. But then he warns, he says, well, kiss the sun before it's too late. Bow down and kiss the sun before he comes as a smashing stone. So the world stage in the last, uh, well, I think we're in that 
point right now, but I, I think the Ancient of Days, that's another name for God, I think he is about ready to again say to his son, in essence, let us go down. Now, we won't be here when he actually says that. We'll have been raptured first. But at the end of the tribulation, that's when he's going to say it. They're going to bring the Son of Man. This is in chapter 7 of Daniel. The Son of Man is going to go to the Ancient of Days, and he's going to say, okay, it's time. Go down. He promised he would set his king on Mount Zion, and he has promised his son the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. So he is going to send him forth to break the heathen nations gathered against his beloved Israel to try to annihilate her. He's going to smash him to pieces with just the word of his mouth, a rod of iron, and um, they'll be broken up like pottery pieces, and then the wind is going to come along and just blow it, and there will be no evidence it was even there. I think that's also picture uh, perfect what Psalm 2 says. All right, the stone of the dream, you know, the stone separate from the image. Well, I had the image over here before, didn't I? The image and the stone, they are, they are completely different. They're vastly different from one another. The image, okay, is, it's a statue, isn't it? it? It's the statue of a man. It's, in other words, an idol. And all idols are man-made, aren't they? So it, that image is completely physical, as all statues and images are. It re represents something man-made. It also consisted of various elements of the earth, right? Like gold, silver, uh, brass, iron, and clay. However, the stone, the stone that comes from above, is not of this earth. It is cut out without hands, and what was it cut out of? A great mountain. Well, you know what that great mountain was? The stone came from above, right? The great mountain is the kingdom of God in heaven. He was cut without hands out of that great stone, came down to earth, and then the stone itself, himself, I should say, grew to a great mountain here on earth. So what that is picturing is the kingdom of heaven coming down to be the kingdom on earth. All right? So it's completely different from the statue because cut out without hands. Now that term is not explained by Daniel in this text of chapter 2. And again, where do we find out what it actually meant? New Testament, the second book. The New Testament reveals the explanation of that term. In Colossians chapter 2 and also several times in Hebrews chapter 9, we find out that the term cut out or made without hands, human hands, and this isn't going to surprise you, it just means something of God, something supernatural, something from heaven. So the stone is a celestial, supernatural heavenly stone from above, cut out without hands, from above. He's, um, that, that ties in with a living stone, right? A living stone, a stone from above. All this is telling the Jews that when they look for their Messiah, he's not going to just be a man. He's going to be supernatural. He's going to be from above. He's going to be from God. That's what Jesus kept trying to tell them over and over again. You know, I'm the manna from heaven. I'm the living water. You know, I came from above. I've been with my father. I know my father. Listen to me. 
And they never got it because they expected the Messiah to just be a man. A man, 100% man, who would deliver them from Rome, from their oppression to Rome. But all along they had the clues, didn't they? You know what else the, the, um, the term cut out without hands refers to? It's a veiled, another veiled Old Testament prediction of the Messiah's virgin birth. Just like uh, the hint that he gave them way back in Genesis 3.15 when he spoke of the seed of the woman. That's, that's unnatural, isn't it? That's supernatural. A, a woman doesn't have seed. And then he gave another hint in Isaiah 7.14 when he said that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. And what would his name be? Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Clues, right? Clues. And then this term from Daniel, cut out without hands, virgin birth. And there may also have been a prophetic hint of the Messiah's resurrection in that description. Because, again, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, referring to the resurrected bodies of believers, you know, when we get our resurrected bodies at the time of the rapture, that body is referred to as a house not made with hands. So with the help of New Testament revelation, we find that the dream prophecy here of the stone is, was, was saying that when the Messiah, the stone, appears on the scene at the time of the final Gentile kingdom of the Ten Toes, in order to crush the whole Colossus, he is going to be from God, from above. He's going to be supernatural. That means he's going to be God. He's a living stone. But he's also going to be born from a woman, a virgin woman, which is unusual. But that means he's going to be a man. He's going to be from above, but he's also going to be from a human being, a woman. So he's going to be what? The God-man. And he's coming, when he comes as a stone, he's going to be coming in a glorified, resurrected, celestial, human body. There you have it. The whole thing. Is that how he's going to return at the second coming? Exactly. Exactly. He's the God-man coming back in his glorified human body. They had all that there. Now, you have to admit, that would be hard to piece together. But it was all there. That's why you need the two books. You need the old and you need the new. Well, no sooner will the return Christ crush the rebellious nations that then he will begin to restore. He isn't just going to come and crush everything and leave it like you've seen places on TV that have been demolished by the, the ISIS and it just looks like a war zone, you know, after World War II. He's not going to just leave it like that. He's going to immediately begin to restore. And that is why the millennial kingdom is also referred to as the times of refreshing and the times of restitution. The once rejected stone is going to be also a restoration stone. <clears throat> He's going to restore the earth, praise God, to her pre-curse condition. Hallelujah! No more weeds, no more thorns on roses, no more 
second law of thermodynamics, where everything is in the process of decay and aging, all of that gone. I believe he's going to restore the uh, atmospheric canopy, protective water canopy, that was broken at the time of the flood. Before the flood, people lived long lives because they were protected from the rays of the sun by a water canopy, the firmament around the earth. That broke at the flood. And uh, I think he's going to restore that. And people, again, are going to have long, long lives. It'll be Methuselah all over again. I'm talking about the people alive in their human bodies who go into the millennial kingdom, will be in our glorified bodies. Um, there will be no more death. Very, very rare that there will be any death, no diseases. I mean, it'll just be a, you can read, the Old Testament is full of the lion will lay down with the lamb. You can let your kids, not mine, but yours, you can let your kids play in the viper pits. And <laughs> uh, but it's going to be the times of refreshing. Uh, when Christ returns to earth, it will be to save Israel, the apple of his eye from annihilation by all the massive Gentile armies assembled against her. It will be to deliver her from the entire period of the times of the Gentiles. And he will fulfill all of his covenant promises that he made with her. Just read, that's in Daniel 9, the 70 weeks prophecy. He says he will fulfill all his promises to her. And he will bind Satan. No, he's not yet bound. I don't care what the preterists say. He is <clears throat> alive and well on planet Earth. <coughs> and if you don't believe that, why don't you just turn on the news once in a while? But he will bind Satan during the whole time of the kingdom. He will judge the nations. And by the way, this is all given in order in the book of Revelation. He will judge the nations. That's called the judgment of the sheep and goats. That's not individual judgment. That's nations being judged. And then he will establish the kingdom of God on Earth. Now, as the stone is totally different from the image that he strikes, so is the kingdom that he establishes totally different from the kingdoms of this world. Praise God for that. We don't want kingdoms like we've seen. The other, king, kingdom, the other kingdoms, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, and Rome, and revived Rome, plus those that preceded them. There were other world empires before Babylon, right? But we started with Babylon because that's when Daniel was writing. There was, for example, Egypt. And there was Assyria. But um, all of those kingdoms, and including going all the way back to Babel, they were all raised by human ambition and worldly power. But the final kingdom is not at all the work of man. Not at all. It is totally the work of God. Don't ever be mistaken to think, and people teach this, that the church is going to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. No. It is not going to be the work of the church. It's not going to be the work of the man. It's going to be the work of Christ, the work of God, completely of God. Its laws and its powers are all divine. It will never be destroyed <clears throat> as all the other empires were. Nor will it be left to other people. See what he says in verse 44. That means that other people of different nations or um, whatever, I, I had to say yesterday, maybe aliens from Mars, you know, are not going to come down and conquer the last kingdom, the godly kingdom, and replace it with their own kingdom. Those who will continue to have dominion with Christ in that final godly kingdom are going to be the same people with the same name, and they are called the saints of the Most High. Look at Daniel 7.18. Daniel 7.18 says, But the saints of the Most High 
The saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess it for how long? Forever. How long? Even forever and ever. I mean, he really wanted us to know that. It will never, ever be replaced by another kingdom. The saints of the Most High will possess it with their Savior, their King, their Lord forever and ever and ever. That means eternally. So Daniel concluded his interpretation of the dream by saying to the king, and this is in verse 45, the great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. You know, Daniel went to bed worried about the future. God sure did give it to him. Do you think he understood it all? No way, Jose. There's no way Nebuchadnezzar got all that, but God gave him exceeding abundantly above all that he could have ever asked and thought to ask. But again, he is ensuring, Daniel is ensuring that Nebuchadnezzar understood that all the credit for the dream, who gave the dream to the king to begin with? God. And who gave the dream then to Daniel? God. And um, who gave Daniel the ability to interpret the dream? God. Daniel wanted to make sure that Nebuchadnezzar knew that all the credit, all the glory, was um, deserved, the great God deserved it all. And he, you know, he made sure, he, he said that several times. He said it before he even gave him the interpretation. He said it in the middle of the interpretation, and then he said it again at the end of the interpretation. He really wanted all the glory to go to God. And then he adds kind of a P.S., to all that he had revealed to the king. He says at the end of verse 45, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof, sure. You see, this is Daniel's assurance to the king and to all future readers of his written record that everything he had said was absolutely true. And uh, you could rely on it. It was true. So what does that do to those who push up the writing of the book of Daniel from the 6th century B.C. to the 2nd century B.C., and they say it was a forger, and he was just making all this up, you know, said it looked like he was predicting history ahead of time. That means that they're forgery, Daniel. Well, this would go hand in hand. You know, he's a liar, because <laughs> he here said that everything he wrote is certain and true. And I believe him, because I believe the Holy Spirit inspired this. This is really the Holy Spirit his warning to the many people that God knew would come along and try to uh, uh, rearrange Daniel's words and the time of Daniel's writings. They would scoff at it. They would criticize it. They would oppose it, challenge it, allegorize it, you know, just try to spiritualize the whole thing. This is the Holy Spirit, and especially with regard to prophecy, right? This is the Holy Spirit basically saying, don't mess with this. Don't mess with this. It has no mistakes, and it is true, and what has been predicted is absolutely certain to come to pass, just like I said. And you can take that to the bank. All right, let's look at, now, I don't know if you remember, but I took the whole chapter of Two, the whole chapter, and divided it into four subdivisions. The first one was uh, dreamy insomnia. Of course, that's when the king had trouble going to sleep uh, because he was worried about the future, and then God gave him the dream, and then he couldn't go back to sleep. He had insomnia, and he wanted somebody to be able to interpret it for him. So we looked at dreamy insomnia, then Daniel's intervention. 
because nobody could interpret the dream or give him the dream, and so there was a decree that all the wise men were going to be killed, and that included Daniel and his friends. So Daniel intervened, and he asked the king for time, right? And he promised him in return that he would give him the dream and the interpretation. So we looked at dreamy insomnia, Daniel's intervention, and then for three weeks we've been looking at Daniel's interpretation. Now we're going to close up the chapter by looking at the dictator influenced. And he was influenced by this revelation. So let's look at verses 46 to 49. Then the king, Nebuchadnezzar, fell upon his face. Kind of reminds me of the whole statue. He just, boom! (laughs) He fell right. I would have liked to have seen that. (laughs) He went into prostrate position. He fell upon his face and he worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods, and a Lord of kings, and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man, and gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel requested of the king, and he, the king, set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was absolutely, completely overwhelmed at all that he had heard from Daniel. Certainly not by any stretch of the imagination, understanding everything that he had heard, uh, but acknowledging and understanding and knowing that what Daniel had just done was humanly impossible, right? No one can tell somebody else what they dreamt. So his first response was to fall on his face and worship Daniel. Now he didn't know Daniel's God. He didn't know the God of the Hebrews, the true God, the most high God, El Elyon. But he would figure that the only way to honor the Jewish God was to honor his representative. So by paying homage to Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar was acknowledging that the Hebrew God was greater than all the gods of Babylon, who were, remember, they were totally unable to help their representatives give him the dream. All the Chaldeans and the sorcerers and the soothsayers and the wise men and all those guys, none of them could tell the king his dream. But Daniel could. So to King Nebuchadnezzar, obviously that meant that his God was greater than their gods, which would include his gods too. And this is exactly what he declares to Daniel when he says, of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing that you could reveal this secret to me. That was not only his admission that what Daniel had told him truly was his dream. Do we know that that was actually the dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreamt? How do we know it? Well, Nebuchadnezzar tells us here. Yes, you did reveal to me the secret. That was, that's admitting that that was his dream. Not only does he admit that, but then he goes on and says, admits that Daniel's God is indeed superior for having done what all the other gods were helpless to do. Now, This is not the scene of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. I told you earlier that he does get saved, right? Nebuchadnezzar comes to have saving faith in the true God. But this isn't where that happens. 
poor guy has to go through seven years of eating grass like a cow before that happens. <laughs> has to be humbled. But here, this is a first step. This is actually a first step. But what he really is doing here was adding the God of the Hebrews, Jehovah God, to his vast pantheon of gods. He's just adding another God on. In the emotion of the moment, he referred to him as a God of gods and a Lord of kings. But that he did not put away his other gods is evident by the term a God of gods. He didn't say that Daniel's God was God, did he? The one and only. He said he's a God of gods. And that he didn't put away his idolatry is certainly evident by the image that he has built in chapter 3. Just look at chapter 3, verse 1. He makes a giant image of gold, which actually represents him, and he commands that everybody worship it. So he doesn't put away his idolatry, and it is also evident um, that he did not truly give credit to God as Lord of Kings. He's a king, right? He really doesn't submit to God as his Lord. And that's evident in chapter 4, verse 30, when he's feeling his Wheaties, and he's so full of himself and proud that he looks over Babylon, and he says to himself, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Well, that did it. Boom. He became like a beast of the field for seven years. You know, watch out, that pride will get you every time. So, obviously, he didn't really mean all these things that he said. It was the emotion of the moment, but he did respect now Daniel's God as being superior to his gods. And he did keep his word. Remember, he had promised a reward for anyone who could give him the dream and its interpretation back in verse 6. So he promoted Daniel to the position of a great man. Now, I got a chuckle out of that. Did you know that it was Nebuchadnezzar who made Daniel a great man? Do you believe that? <laughs> who really made Daniel a great man? God. I mean, maybe Nebuchadnezzar made him a great man in the eyes of the world, you know, in the worldly realm, but more importantly, God made him a great man in the spiritual realm. And he also gave him many great gifts, whatever that would include, probably all kinds of fancy robes and turbans and gold and silver and jewelry, who knows, maybe a new house. He gave him lots of great gifts, and he made him a ruler. And the Aramaic word is actually sultan, S-U-L-T-A-N. Daniel was a sultan, probably had a turban on his head, you know, um, over the province of Babylon. Now, there were many provinces in the Neo-Babylonian empire of Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel was made the sultan over the province of, of Babylon that included the city of Babylon, which was the, the, the metropolis of the entire empire. So that's a big position. And then it tells us he was given um, the privilege to sit in the gate of the king. Who else sat at the gate of a city? Anybody? Yesterday they got them both right away. Two other people in the Old Testament sat at the gate of the city. No? He went there to do the shoe thing. Who? I heard it. Yes, Lot, Lot. Very good, Linda. Lot was one, and who was the other one? 
Mordecai, very, very good. Lot and Mordecai sat at the gate. That, that spoke of a twofold responsibility of being the, the king's representative um, judge. When you sat at this, the city gate, you represented the king and you judged um, situations like let's say two people came to you and they said, well, he, he says this cow is his and it's actually mine and so he would be the judge in that situation. So he was the king's representative judge. It also meant that he was an advisor, a, a primary advisor to the king, a counselor of the king. And so it today would be comparable to being put on the Supreme Court and don't we need a Daniel today on the Supreme Court? Yes, we do. I pray for a Daniel to replace the good Judge Scalia. It would be nice to have a Daniel there. Um, but it would be like being put on the Supreme Court and also being made the Prime Minister. Or we don't have Prime Ministers, let's say the Vice President. Both positions. That's pretty amazing, you know, especially for a young guy of only about 20 years of age. But in both of those capacities, wouldn't Daniel be able to benefit his own people, the Jewish people? And wouldn't he also be able to be a witness of salt and light, a witness to all the citizens of Babylon? So who put him there? Nebuchadnezzar? No, the sovereign God put him there. And then a third honor that was given to Daniel was he was made the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Yeah, don't you think they love that? Hmm. He didn't kill the king. You remember the king had told the wise men if they couldn't perform, he was going to chop them in pieces and make their houses into dunghills. Well, he didn't do that. Um, but he still did humiliate them. He humiliated them by placing over them, you know, authority over them, a young Jewish captive who openly disproved of all their superstitious, paganistic, occultic, magical practices. So they were humiliated by that. But how could they complain? Could they complain? Hadn't Daniel really saved their lives? And I do think that some of them came to a saving knowledge in a God that they admitted um, that their gods, you know, they said only a god could give somebody a dream. So I really do think some of those wise men, Chaldeans or whoever, got saved because they were the ancestors of the wise men who came from that same area to worship the king of Israel. Um, so he was, it's just amazing how the position that he was put in, Daniel, at a very early period of his life. By the way, this is the last time we see Daniel as a young man. Next time we see Daniel, he's going to be older, much older. Um, but so at an early period of his life, although a recent stranger to and a captive of the great and golden Babylonian empire, yet he was exalted to the highest positions of honor that could be conferred on any subject of the king. I mean, you would expect this kind of thing, this kind of, these kind of places of distinction, maybe for someone old who had faithfully served the king for years and years, right? But for it to be given to a young Jewish captive like Daniel, that's just a miracle. That's, it's just like Joseph being taken from the prison, the pit, to the pinnacle. It's, that's, a, that's a work of God. God put him in those positions. And Daniel, we know, Daniel was a kind, thoughtful, godly young man. And therefore, seeing the hand of the sovereign God in everything, he hoped to also find 
places of spiritual influence in the pagan Babylonian kingdom for his three friends, didn't he? He didn't forget about them. So after getting everything he got from the king, he boldly asked for something else. He makes a request that his three godly friends who had proven faithful, you know, when they joined him in the diet test and they also joined him in the dream or death test by praying with him and then praising God for the answer to the dream. So he asked the king if on... Um, uh, if, he would, if he would delegate the daily oversight of the whole Babylonian province to his three friends. I mean, you see, Daniel was made the sultan over the whole province. That'd be a hard job to do by yourself, right? <laughs> so you have to delegate your responsibility. But instead of wanting to delegate that to pagans, he asked that it be for his three friends. And it's amazing that the king granted his request, didn't he? He trusted the integrity of, of Daniel, but remember he had also met these three guys when he gave the final exam after the Babylonian brainwashing academy, you know, and he found them to be ten times wiser than all his wise men. So he did indeed give these three guys positions as rulers, sub-rulers of the Babylonian province. And often when you're given an advancement in your position, what immediately follows but adversity. And that's what we're going to look at when we look at chapter 3 because these three guys face the greatest adversity you can imagine, threatened with a fiery furnace. But I have a few minutes, and this is the most exciting part of the lesson, so I'm not going to squeeze it all in. I'm not going to finish by 1130, so if you have to go, go, but this is, this is great. And I can't believe I'm only on chapter, page 4. Oh, dear. I want to return to the subject of Christ's return at the second coming, when he again will dwell with men on earth. I want to look at some interesting history about God's dwelling presence with men. You know, long ago, at the dedication of Solomon's temple, after it was built, there was a dedication ceremony in Jerusalem. At that dedication, God was pleased to take up his residence above the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of the temple, right? Pictured by his Shekinah glory. It dwelt, I don't know if you call the Shekinah glory an it or a he. I'm going to call it a he, because it's the physical, I mean, the, the visible representation of God. But he dwelt in the midst of Israel, right there in her temple, making the people of Israel, the most blessed people this earth has ever known, other than Adam and Eve, who walked with God in the cool of the evening. But they had, they had with them, they were privileged to enjoy the presence and the power and the protection and the provision of God himself, God dwelling with them. <clears throat> Why was Jerusalem the holy city? Because God dwelt there. Right, because of his presence with him. And his glory remained in that location until the years that immediately preceded the Babylonian captivity. Now Ezekiel, remember Ezekiel? He's a Jewish priest who's also a prophet. He was taken during the second exile to Babylon. He was a contemporary of Daniel. But he had been permitted to see 
in a vision the glory, the Shekinah glory of God leaving his position over the Ark of the Covenant in the temple and going to the threshold of the temple. You can read all about this. It starts in Ezekiel chapter 10. It gives you the procession as the Shekinah glory leaves the temple, leaves his presence with his people. He leaves over the ark and he goes to the threshold of the temple. And then it's like in sadness, he hovers there for a while. Like he's weeping because he doesn't want to depart from his people, but he has to because they have turned to other gods. They've even brought false gods into the temple and defiled it. Remember how Jesus had to go in and clean it? Well, he couldn't stay there because of his holiness, so he was sad, but he had to leave. So Ezekiel watched as the Shekinah glory left the threshold of the temple and departed from the city through the eastern gate. And then as it left the eastern gate, you know, it would go down the Kidron Valley and up on the Mount of Olives, and there it hovered again for a while <clears throat> before the moving representation of God's presence then disappeared, like kind of like the ascension. It disappeared from the east of the city, and the saddest word in the Bible was written over Israel. What is that word? Ichabod, 1 Samuel 4, 12, 21. What does it mean, Ichabod? The glory has departed. And that's exactly what happened. Um, then shortly after that, after that vision, <clears throat> God, by the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar, took the Jewish people where? To Babylon. Okay? You, you like your idols? I'll give you idols until you get sick of them. And then 70 years later, a remnant of them returned to Jerusalem, permitted to do so by a decree that was given by Cyrus, the Medo-Persian ruler. However, they never again, the Jewish people never again had the freedom and the autonomy, autonomy that they had had before the captivity. It even took them 21 years to rebuild their temple. Solomon's temple had been demolished by Nebuchadnezzar. So they had to rebuild the temple. It's called Zerubbabel's temple. It took them 21 years. Why? Because of constant attacks from the enemy. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Ashdodites, and all kinds of parasites that were always attacking them, you know? Um, and, and they also were still under the sovereignty of the Medo-Persians because they had to pay heavy taxes to the Medo-Persians. So they never again had their sovereignty. Furthermore, did you know this? That nowhere, nowhere in the scripture do we ever read that God's glory returned to his former residence in the temple. Did the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, return to the Ark of the Covenant of Zerubbabel's temple, the Holy of Holies? No, it did not. He did not. Did he return when... Herod took Zerubbabel's temple and built on and just magnified it to Herod's temple. Did the Shekinah glory return to the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant? No, there was not even an Ark of the Covenant there, much less God's glory. However, when the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom was all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, when the word of God became flesh, and dwelt among us. Then the glory of God returned to Israel. Although veiled, right, in human flesh, they couldn't see that Shekinah glory, except 
three of them on one occasion, Mount of Transfiguration, when he let that glory shine through. But the Shekinah, the glory of God, the presence of God dwelling with men, dwelling in Israel, returned when Jesus Christ came to Israel. And when he officially presented himself to Israel as her Messiah, which was on Palm Sunday, um, that was the return of the glory of God to Jerusalem and to the temple. He was, he was officially offering Israel his divine presence and power and provision and protection. And he arrived that day, guess from where? The east of the city. Remember, he spent the night, Saturday night, in Bethany with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Then he left with his disciples early in the morning, went to the Mount of Olives, a little town called Bethpage, got himself a donkey, and then he went from the Mount of Olives, and he, on the donkey, before he rode down, he wept over the city in great sorrow because he knows the end from the beginning, right? He knew that in just a few days they would be calling out, crucify him, crucify him. And so he, um, he, in great sorrow, he looked over the city and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stoneth them that are sent unto thee, how oft would I have gathered thee like a hen gathers her little biddies around her? You know, I just wanted to do that so badly, but ye would not. And so he said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And he wept. As he said, if you had known even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. You know what he was talking about? He was saying, if you had known the book of Daniel and the 70 weeks prophecy, you could have calculated to this very day, Palm Sunday, that this is the day your Messiah would arrive. But now, because you missed it, willfully, you would not, these things are hidden from you. Is Israel blinded? It's judicial blindness, isn't it? But anyway, as he comes on Palm Sunday, do you know, as I said, he came from the east of the city. Just the, the same path that the Shekinah glory had left. He comes from the east of the city. He stops for a while on the Mount of Olives and weeps over Jerusalem. And then he goes down the Kidron Valley and he enters into the city through the eastern gate and goes straight to the temple. You can read all about it. It's in Matthew 21. His disciples were very disappointed because it, with everybody waving and crying out Hosanna, they thought he was going to go into the temple and announce that I am your Messiah and he would be crowned as king, blah, blah, blah. That's what they were expecting. He didn't do that. He just went there quietly and healed some people. And they were disappointed. Um, but what he did was he retraced the exact departure path of the Shekinah glory of God some 600 years earlier. Are you following me so far? All right. <clears throat> he wept. Why did he weep? Well, he wept because the opportunity he was offering Israel for the glory of God to return after 600 years, that opportunity was lost. He wept because her time of oppression and subjection under, under Gentile nations could have ended. The times of the Gentiles could have ended that day. You know that? If they had accepted him. But because of their willful rejection, because they followed their spiritual leaders who in envy willfully rejected him, 
The temple, he said, would be left desolate. The glory of God in Christ would not dwell there. The times of the Gentiles would not end. So you know what Jesus' farewell words were to Israel? He said, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Matthew 23, 39. When will that happen? Second coming. That'll be the time of the smiting stone. After he smashes the kingdoms of this world, Israel finally will say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They will acknowledge him as Messiah. Well, after speaking those words to Israel in departure, the path that Jesus took from Jerusalem, now he arrived to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday from the east, down the you know, Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley, through the eastern gate to the temple. The way he left the city two days later, on Tuesday of the Passion Week, was the exact one that the Shekinah glory had taken prior to the Babylonian captivity. The temple was indeed left des desolate when Jesus left it. Matthew 24, 1. He and his disciples left the temple and they went to the Mount of Olives. Okay? That tells us that he went out the eastern gate, because the Mount of Olives is to the east of the city. He went down the eastern gate with his men down the Kidron Valley to get there, up to the Mount of Olives. And just like the Shekinah glory before hovered over the city, he hovered as he had when he wept over her, he hovered. Now he hovered again on his departure because that's where he gave the Olivet Discourse. Do you know what the Olivet Discourse is all about? It's about the latter days of the times of the Gentiles. It's the period of the ten toes of the final Gentile kingdom and how it will be destroyed by the Son of Man coming as lightning out of the east. That is going to be the fulfillment of the smiting stone prophecy of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Now, interestingly, Scripture not only states that the Lord's return will be out of the east, he'll come from the east, it also tells us, you know this, where he will put down his feet. You know, when the Lord returns, <clears throat> after he defeats the Antichrist and his confederacy at the Battle of Armageddon, and he'll do that from the air just by the word of his mouth, I don't know what he says, die or whatever he says, and they're all, you know, smashed to pieces and wind blows them away, then he will come to the holy city, where will he put down his feet? Exactly, the Mount of Olives. It tells us that in Zechariah 14.4. It says, and his feet will stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. Now, we would know that because that's precisely what the two angels told the disciples at the time of the Lord's ascension. Where did he ascend to heaven? From the Mount of Olives, right? And remember the two angels said to the disciples, why do you men of, of uh, Galilee gaze, keep gazing upwards? This same Jesus will return in like manner as you have seen him go. What does that mean? How did he depart? Bodily. He'll return bodily. It's not going to be spiritual. It's going to be physical, bodily. And, and where did he depart from? The Mount of Olives. Where will he return? Mount of Olives. And the returned Christ will then, <clears throat> not on a donkey, but on a white stallion, he will pass from the Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley and enter Jerusalem through what gate? 
the Eastern Gate, which is also called the Golden Gate. That is the only gate of the city that leads directly onto the Temple Mount. And it is the only entrance to Jerusalem from the east. So we know that that's the, the gate he will enter through. We also know it from other prophecies I'll get to in a minute. But of the, did you know this? This is so fascinating. And a lot of ladies yesterday did not know this. But of the eight gates of the old wall of the city, yes, the eastern gate, the golden gate, and I've seen it with my two eyes. Some of you probably have too. And if you haven't, you can Google it and see it. <laughs> it is the only gate that is sealed shut. It has been sealed closed with concrete since 1541 AD when the Turkish Muslim Sultan named Suleiman the Magnificent, that was not his last name, you know, they always wanted to give themselves great names, Suleiman the Magnificent purposely cemented it closed. He closed it off. Why? Because he wanted to put an end to the Jewish hope that their coming Messiah would enter Jerusalem through that specific gate, the eastern gate, and then take the temple site for his throne. So he thought he was going to prevent their holy Messiah from returning by sealing the gate. And to make double sure, he also put a cemetery right in front of the gate, a Muslim cemetery, figuring that any Jewish holy man would never, they wouldn't walk on cemeteries to begin with, much less a Muslim cemetery. So he can't cross the cemetery and then he can't get through the gate, so he's going to prevent the, the Jewish Messiah from ever returning and taking the Temple Mount. He had no idea, this Suleiman, he had no idea that he was being sovereignly used by God to fulfill prophecy when he sealed shut the eastern gate. You see, Ezekiel, again we return to Ezekiel, but long ago, long before Suleiman was even born, he had been divinely inspired to predict that that gate would be shut and no man would be able to open it until the arrival of the prince, the Messiah. You can read that. It's in Ezekiel 44, verses 1 to 3. You see, when the prince came, that gate, you know, he would enter through that gate, the eastern gate to the temple. Now, did you know that in history past, there have been several attempts to reopen those gates by people who just want to disprove prophecy? Uh, we'll just, you know, blow them apart. We'll open them up. And Ezekiel's prophecy will be no good. But every one of those attempts has been unsuccessful. And I can tell you if there's any future attempts to open those gates, they will also be unsuccessful. I can say that dogmatically because God's word will not be altered. No matter how hard men might try, it is just as foolish for men to think that they can open what God has shut as it is for them to try to keep shut what he decides to open, right? As there was no way to keep Jesus in a sealed tomb, <laughs> there is no way that a sealed gate, I don't care if it is cement, 
is going to prevent the king of glory from entering his city and his temple exactly as he predicted at the time of his return. Ezekiel, you see, not only wrote about the departure of the Shekinah glory of God from the temple and from Israel at the beginning of the times of the Gentiles, but Ezekiel also wrote about the return of the Shekinah glory of God at the end of the times of the Gentiles. Here's what he said. This is in Ezekiel 43. He says, afterward, he, and there he's speaking about the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ is the one who gave him all his visions. Okay, so he says, he, the pre-incarnate Christ, brought me to the gate. What gate? Even the gate that looked toward the east. And behold, here's what Ezekiel's seeing. He's at the eastern gate, and he sees the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. And the glory of the, God, of the Lord came into the house, that means the temple, by way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. And the glory of God filled the house, filled the temple. And he said unto me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the children of Israel forever. And my holy name shall the house of Israel no more defile. Wow. You see, the returned Lord's entrance into Jerusalem is going to be a right, a right replay or a righted replay of his long ago Palm Sunday entrance into Jerusalem. Except this time, the next time, it is truly going to be triumphant. They call it the triumphant entry, but it wasn't because just a few days later they crucified him, right? This time it's going to be triumphant. All the redeemed of the Lord will be with him. That's you and I. All the fruit of his cross work, we will be there with him. We will see this with our eyes, him riding in on a white stallion. I think multitudes of angels will hover over the whole procession. Um, and as he approaches, as he approaches those closed cement doors of that eastern gate, you know what those doors are going to do before him? They are going to bow open before him, and he is going to enter into the city of David to the triumphant shouts of multitudes and multitudes, including Israel, saying Hosanna to the son of David, and he will be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. Wow. I cannot wait to, to see that day. And perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps this is what this mysterious little saying in Psalm uh, 24 is referring to. Twice in Psalm 24, it says this. Listen. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, oh, I'm so emotional, but it's a good emotion. Thank you. Thank you for the power of the scripture. Mm. Thank you for the truthfulness of it, which is so evident 
in every detail, the most minute detail. And it just, I am so amazed week after week, year after year as I study it, it is just my joy. It's my hope. It's my confidence. And every week, that joy and hope and confidence is elevated to an ever higher degree. Thank you for every page. Thank you for every line, for every word of, of scripture. Because everything matters, and it all points to one person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb and the Lion, the precious cornerstone and the stumbling, smiting, crushing stone, the sacrifice for sin and yet the sovereign of the universe. Father, it is my sincere prayer that every single heart here would be in awe of him, just in reverential awe, and that by your spirit you would draw everyone here today to your son, that every heart and soul is tuned to you in absolute adoration and praise, and to acknowledge that there is no other Savior. There is salvation in no other name under heaven except in the name of your blessed Son. So do your work of grace in every heart here, and we will give you the praise and the glory you alone deserve. Amen. God bless you.